You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Let's get into Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning and hired to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going at about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers, they, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Is that rubbing you a little wrong right now? Wait. We'll get there, man. Ooh, I don't like to think about some of this. So um, this parable has been traditionally called the laborers in the vineyard. And if you have the focus on what the laborers are doing, then you're going to get infuriated with this parable. That's kind of like the me focus. I'm working, etc. Okay? What do I do? What do I get? Wait a minute. That's not fair. Now... There's also another focus, and Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for 40 years, he's passed away, wrote some great commentaries, understood the peasant culture, understood what was going on, looked at all the Eastern Syriac versions of the texts, etc., really got to what this parable is about, a lot of the parables. And in it, he says, really, this parable should not be called the laborers in a vineyard, but the compassionate employer. And the focus is really on what? That employer does who represents God in the parable. And when you look at it from that angle, all of a sudden it makes all the difference. And you start going like, wow. And, and you're amazed at the goodness and the compassion of someone like this. So that's the real question today. It's what is your focus? What's my focus? Most of the time, I don't even realize what my focus Because I don't reflect on that. But if I do, you know what my focus is? Me. Even when I am serving other people, my focus is on 
me and how I'm serving those other people. Have you ever done that before? And even when I'm praising God and thinking my focus is on God, I'm going like, wow, look at how my focus is on God and I'm focusing again on me. It's really hard not to be into self-worship and into self-focus throughout and what I'm doing and what I should get and how I should work. And when that focus is up, when life is all about what I do and what I should get for what I do and why others seem to get more than me who have done less than I have done and what they should deserve and what you know you get into that life is going to be one long exhausting struggle and you're going to often be offended so today we're going to look at this parable in those two angles and then try to figure out how we can get from the one to the other so we're going to look at a me focus the worker focus then a, a god focus the owner focus, or the employer focus, and then finally, how do you go from me to God? How do we get there? Okay. So I, um, the me focus. Now I've kind of shared that already, but you might. I don't remember this, uh, and it's probably best I don't remember the lawyer who has this commercial on local television here. It is not the one you think. <laughs> okay, but he gets up and he says. In my family, I grew up in a family where hard work, yada, 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 and I have worked for everything I earned, and I believe in that, and I will work for you, and I'm listening to this. Now, I analyze things way too much, okay? I analyze movies. I can't sit there and go like, well, wait a minute. This makes no sense, and my wife and family go like, what are you doing? Just enjoy something for a chain, and I keep analyzing, okay? But I analyze this commercial, I'm going like, wait a minute, now you're saying that you grew up in this family, you've worked for everything that you deserve and earned, and that's the way it should be, but did you choose the family you grew up into? Did you, you grew up in a family with a mom and a dad and a few brothers and sisters, but like we talked about last night at, uh, at the auction, there are a lot of kids that grow up and mom and dad are not a positive experience experience in their situation. They're in the foster care system all of a sudden, and their outcomes are a bit different. But you're, you know, you don't realize, it's amazing how I do not realize the privilege I have, the opportunities that are given me, the hard work that I might do, but it's in response to that I get an opportunity to even work. Here we have brothers and sisters born and raised in Haiti right now in a government that is, we can call it corrupt, can't we? <laughs> and a system where there's 80% unemployment and no real, do you understand? I've got a lot of opportunities and privileges and give. It's really not about my, did I ask for the brains I have or the body I've been given or any of that stuff? But you think in this commercial, that what you've got in life is all about what you've done with it and how everybody should get what they do. Hmm. Like I said, I analyze too much. <laughs> it's amazing how easily, and even with that commercial, how easy it is for me to start resenting this guy and what he's thinking, right? I worked hard for everything I earned. Now I'm unemployed, and man, I deserve that unemployment, but those people who are on welfare shouldn't be getting 
Do you understand how easy that is when we make those kind of comparisons? There's resentment so easy in our voice and in our attitude. It's just like the workers in this parable. Brand Hansen says in this book, we hate it when we are trying so hard to earn something and then someone else gets the same thing without trying as hard. It's amazing, right? You know, the master in this parable, I don't think you realize this. The master sets him up for scandal, himself up for it. Why? Because who did he pay first? Those who worked last. You know what that means? He didn't pay the first first. If he had done that, they would have gotten their denarius, what they had agreed to, and walked away before they saw what the next group and the next group and the next group paid. But the master set himself up for a scandal by paying the people who worked one whole hour a denarius. And you can get this tension almost in this parable. The people who heard Jesus the first time would have been shocked at that. And then the next group comes in who worked three hours. What? They got paid a denarius. And those who worked you know, from noon on, a denarius. And those who worked from nine on, a denarius. And those who worked from 6 AM in the morning till 6 PM at night, 12 hours, no overtime, nothing more, a denarius. You can hear the cries of like socialism or you know, class action lawsuits coming their his way, you know? I mean, you can, you, can, you can name it all you want. How can you treat everybody the same? Now, traditionally, historically, one application of this parable from the early church on was the fact that it's an actual historical example that Jesus is retelling the story of Israel and the children of Israel who were first the covenant people of God from way back when, who have been faithful to God, who grew up in that covenant, were like the workers early in the morning. And the Gentiles come in at the last minute and get the same salvation. What? Do you understand? Yeah. Now, here's something you have to understand about Jesus' day and age. And I think when we talk about that, we can also then start seeing like, whoa, wait a minute, and look at our society. But in that day and age, there was a real question who the kingdom of God was really for. Okay? When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is, for, is like, and he tells these parables, everybody's thinking, oh, yeah, it's for me. I'm a pious Jew. I keep the law. I am a uh, law-abiding. I'm part of the children of Israel. I can trace my ancestry back to Abraham and to Jacob and the kings and all that stuff. So it's like I'm in, and those we're not sure about those people, everyone else. So the traditional view of a lot of people in Jesus' day were the Jews are in, and everyone else, eh, not so much. You could see it at the temple. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the Old Testament temple by the time. It wasn't set this way up by God himself in the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus, the Herodian temple was set up by the Sadducees and the Pharisees to have three distinct courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, where anyone who was a God-fearer who could come in, but that's all the farther. And there was a sign posted at that. If you're Gentile, 
you, if you step into this next court, we're going to stone you to death. Seriously. And then the next court was the court of, anybody know? Women. The women. So they could get a step farther than the Gentiles, but Jewish women could go to this court. And then there was the court of men. See the hierarchy going on? And then within the temple precinct itself, it's the priests and the high priests, etc. Jesus never set this up. God never set this up. But that's the way everybody thought. Now, the extreme example of this hierarchical and status understanding of things was what I talked about last week, the Essene community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They decided that the entire temple was corrupt and the entire Jewish population was corrupt because they weren't keeping the law well enough. And so we're going out in the middle of the desert, creating our own commune and setting up our structure. And the most pure ones will be in the kingdom of God and the least pure. So they eliminated two-thirds of the Jewish population even from being in. Isn't that amazing? So that's the context in which Jesus tells this parable. People have different views of the kingdom of God, of who's in and who's out. And Jesus flips the whole thing around, turns it inside out. It's in Matthew chapter 20, Chapter 21 is his entry into Jerusalem, and he's dead a week later. Do you understand why now? This was irritating. Irritating. Now, I wish it were just a historical example back then of the difference between Jew and Gentile that Jesus is talking about. I think we've got a few others throughout history. And in the United States, <sighs> We have historically had class and race used to distinguish who's in and who's out. There is uh, a lady, Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if any of you have ever read her literature. Now, uh, Dan is a literature teacher. Dan, do you ever read a short stories by Flannery O'Connor? No, really. She was a Christian writer probably in the 30s. And uh, she writes this short story. You can get it online in a PDF if you want. I read through it to, uh, again. It's called Revelation. And in it, there's this woman named Mrs. Turpin. And she is, bless her heart, one of those southern ladies in that time period that looks down on everyone else, which is pretty funny because she's a hog farmer. Her <laughs> husband and her are hog farmers. But at least they keep their hogs in pens and not let them just rooting around their yard. And she and Claude, Claude's sick, so they go to the doctor. And at the doctor's office, <laughs> she, she's just got the attitude of, well, those are white trash, and those people are black, and this, and this, and that. Bless their hearts, but thank God I'm not any of those. And she just, in the way she's speaking to everybody, in the conversation she's having, and her superiority kind of issues going on, um, there is a young lady there who has a, uh, Mary Grace, her name is. And Mary Grace falls into a seizure finally because she's just so livid at what she's hearing coming out of Mrs. Turpin's mouth. And in the middle of her seizure, she looks up at Mrs. Turpin and says, you old, bat, or, you old warthog, go back to hell where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> well. Mrs. Turpin goes like, how did she come up with that? 
she gets totally offended at that. They get back home. Claude takes off to take the hired hands back home. And she's sitting there feeding the hogs. And she talks to herself and says this, why me? It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to and break my back to the bone and every day working and do for the church. Do you see her resentment, her attitude, her class and race distinctions? <coughs> and then Flannery O'Connor has her have a revelation, an actual vision when she's feeding the hogs and it goes like this. She saw the streak as vast as a swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. Yet she could see from their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. Her rank, her status, the race issues, the privilege, even her, quote, virtues, she realizes are going to be burned away, and she gets in by grace, like everyone else. Now, I know, if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, here we go, okay? I've been to de denominational meetings where everybody tries to out-denominate the other. Have you ever done, seen that in the church? It's like, well, I, my family's been here for three, or like, you know, um, I've been a part of this church body and my family founded it in 1845, you know? And then it's like, what does that have to do with anything? Right? I've also seen uh, people talk about, well, in America, the true Americans are, and they come up and rattle off certain things. And you go like, um, really? I thought we were all immigrants. You know? And nobody asked us to come to the land that I know of. The people who were here didn't say, oh, sure, come on in and take, you know. Do you? I know. I'm stepping on toes. I know. OK? It was funny. Um, I was, when we lived out in California, the landowners who owned the orchards and groves, you know, and were complaining about the migrants and how they shouldn't yada, 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 get all these benefits from the government. Yet at the same time, the landowners were getting federal subsidies for their farms. Well, it's true, though. Yeah, I know it right. Is. It's called corporate welfare. Corporations get this stuff, right? Tax breaks, etc. And in church, I got to step on my own toes. I have caught myself complaining about how we pastors, oh, we work so hard and don't get a, pre you know, all that type of stuff. The truth is here at Thrive, it's probably not. Uh, I know people behind the scenes that never 
get the recognition and are doing it for the sake of Jesus and not for that. And that are working a lot harder. And I catch myself going like, what? I get the privilege. I get the privilege to do what I'm doing. This isn't work, you know? When I am me-centered, when I'm focused on how hard I'm working, how hard my life is, what I earn, what I deserve, what are my rights, how I compare myself, no wonder I get upset and so offended so easily about all the other people in this world. And that is what I think is dividing the United States more than almost anything else. It's how we're looking at other people and dividing them and saying those people shouldn't and I should. And what's so funny in this whole thing, and it's not even bad enough. These workers in this parable who got the denarius had no pro would have had no problem getting that denarius if the other people had gotten less. Do you get what we're talking about here? I was two years older than my brother and my family, and at times, my parents treated us the same. And it's like, I had to wait. I remember this one. I've told this to my mom. Christmas, one year, I had waited for years to get a BB gun. My brother, two years younger, got the same BB gun, the same <laughs> Christmas. And I get upset because we, they treated, what? Do you understand? I would have been totally satisfied if I got the BB gun and he got one the next year, maybe, or two years. And he would have been totally ticked if I got a BB gun and he didn't. There was no way my parents could win on that one because we're always comparing ourselves to other people and what God is doing in their lives. And this parable is an example of that as if it's about our work and it's about who we are and how we do. You don't want what you deserve. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Kenneth Bailey says this, the complainers represent those who not only obey the will of God, but those who seek to dictate God's will as regards to others. Wow. How many times am I caught going like, wait a minute, those people, da, 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 da. I want to tell God what to do, when to do it, and how. We think somehow basing everything on what we do and how hard we're working in a me-centered, it's going to bring about justice and fairness. And all the talk about justice and fairness, most of the time, is a talk about dictatorship, where I'm in charge and telling everybody else what to do, when to do it, and how. It's not about justice. It's not about fairness. And it's not about God's justice or God's fairness at all. So now you're going to say, wait, okay, I've stepped on all the toes I can, I think. But what's the alternative, and that is what I believe is the God focus that this parable is really about, the owner focused. Like Ken Bailey, I think the best way to interpret this is to see what this owner does, which makes no sense. It's shocking. And the first hearers in Jesus' day would go like, what? Think about it. He, the owner of the vineyard, goes personally out to the marketplace to find the day laborers. That's the first shock in the first century because he's got, and later on it says, he has a foreman. That was the foreman's job. But the owner himself 
cares so much about the unemployment, the unemployed, and the people. He himself personally goes out at 6 a.m. and then goes back five times. Spends all his day just seeking people, finding them, and if they don't have a job, giving it to him, them. He starts out by saying at 6 a.m., work for me and you'll get a day's wage. They make a contract. At 9 a.m. and 12 uh, p.m. and 3 p.m., he says, work for me and I'll give you what is right. And they agree. At 5 p.m., one hour to go, he just says, get out there and work. He doesn't give them any promise at all. And when the end of the day comes, everybody gets the same because he cares more about their families and the dignity of giving them a job so they could go home with the day's wage and care for their families than he does about how much it's costing him. Kenneth Bailey says, but to make the trek in person from the farm to the market and back five times in a single day is unheard of. That's the manager's job. Against the expectation of his class, the master in this parable does not remain aloof. His compassion leads him to go to the hurting himself and thereby incarnate his deep concern as he demonstrates costly love to the poor. Jesus is describing his own ministry and how subversive it was in that century, how still subversive it is today. And this is just before he walks into Jerusalem where they kill him for things like this. Because we can't stand the grace of God coming to all those people. Realize this too. Did the owner short anybody anything? No. What are they complaining about? His generosity? Yeah. This is interesting. N.T. Wright He's another theologian. He, uh, I think he nails this parable pretty well. He says, God's grace, in short, is not the sort of thing you can bargain with or try to store up. It isn't that sort of thing that one person can have a lot of and someone else only a little. The point of the story is that the people get from ha- uh, what people get from having served God and his kingdom is not actually a wage at all. It's not strictly a reward for work done. God doesn't make contracts with us as if we could bargain or negotiate for a better deal. He makes covenants in which he promises everything and asks us everything in return. When he keeps his promises, he is not rewarding us for effort, but doing what comes naturally to his overflowing, generous nature. That's why Brant Hansen in this book says, uh, the kingdom is not balanced. It does not operate via a common sense. And you cannot possibly try as you might take it too far. Being a citizen of the kingdom then means operating in that whole new economy and grace. Unfair, imbalanced grace is the currency. Who would ever give so much to so many? He didn't look for total quality management. He didn't try to figure out how to get more work out of less workers. He cared about the workers more than his vineyard, than his pocketbook, than his very self. It wasn't for him to accumulate. It was for him to disperse. Isn't that amazing? That is our God. And that's how I think we start learning when we look at that God-centeredness of this parable, how we can go from a me-centered life to a God-centered life. When you keep coming back to God's word and hearing what he has to say at how the world is set up, how he is set up, who he is, 
and how he is responding to your needs. Then you can start going from God's uh, me-centered to God-centered. But let me tell you, the first word I get to hear from God is not one I want to hear. Okay? Because all of us come in, and all of us have an attitude in this world about, well, honestly, I get what I deserve, or I should get what I deserve, or I, you know, I've worked really hard. And the first word I need to hear from God is, what is it that I really do deserve for what I've been doing? We've turned this life into a me-centered life. And if we can at least stop focusing on ourselves for just a moment and hear what God says about what we really deserve, we may want to stop focusing on that whole topic. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Yeah. That was the first workers and the last workers and everyone in between. Nobody deserved work in that vineyard. Nobody was such a great worker. Of course, the guy had to hire him. Every gift along the way, the family, everything I have is a gift from God. Everything. And then, okay, if I've fallen short and sinned, what do I earn? What's my paycheck? And Paul says that in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's what I earn. Do I want what I earn, what I deserve? Brent Hansen says in this book, Paul says, in effect, if you think you should get what you earn, you will, and you don't want that. <laughs> Thank God. God doesn't want to give it to you either. He wants to give you what you don't deserve. Isn't that great? God wants to give you what you don't deserve. That passage goes on, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Costly, precious grace, freely given, freely given, freely given again and again and again. Costly, precious grace. You know, um, that's what's fascinating about this parable again. Um, the owner himself goes out. He had a foreman. He could have sent someone else. God did not decide to send an angel to do this. He didn't send some other people to do this. He sent himself, his own son, to do what only his son could do for us. And it cost him everything. And God doesn't say, okay, I'll meet you halfway. He knows that wouldn't be good enough. He has to come right where we are, into our very lives, and he rescues us. And it costs him everything. The one who believes and trusts that, you got to almost be like a child. In fact, Jesus says that. You know, Brand Hansen says, it takes childlike humility to embrace the love of God, to realize how unfair it is, and then add quickly, but I'll take it. That's kind of what humility is. 
we finally let go of all our rules and fairness questions and all that stuff and just say, okay, God, I just need you. I need your, you to have rescued me, taken me in, been part of your family. I don't care how long I'm working. I've been able to th know securely, personally myself, I can't remember a time in my life that I have not known who Jesus was. I know that's odd for a lot of people. But you know the good news is, I can't remember a time in my life I didn't know who Jesus was. I don't get more. I just have had confidence that Jesus has loved me and forgiven me since I was a child. Why would I want to trade that for getting in at the last second on my deathbed and having had a life of whatever and questions about it? The first people employed knew they were part of the kingdom from the beginning and were going to get the day's wage. They didn't have to worry about all day long, well, am I in? Am I wanted? Am I out? What am I going to do? I've never had to have those types of questions in my life. I think it's a blessing to have had that all along. And those who get in and quote at the end, praise God. Praise God. It takes humility. Like a child, we're never not like children in the kingdom of God. And next week, actually, as we close the series out, it's going to be focusing on what that humility is. And humility is, basically, could be defined as being unoffendable. You know? Because, okay, you know, that's good. And being childlike, in a lot of ways, is being unoffendable, just realizing what grace is. So that's the question. Have you received the gift? Have you received it like a child? Eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your ministry. This one's tough, Lord. You um, offended a lot of people by equally welcoming all in. Not stratifying, not separating, not um, dividing, but uniting all in you through your death and resurrection. But we thank you, Lord, for that. Help us, O oh Lord, to see what your grace means for us and for others. Teach us, O oh Lord, that we would be unoffendable, that others, uh, we would not be the Mrs. Turpins of this world, dividing and um, judging and uh, deciphering or dictating to others. Give us the joy of salvation so much so that we have the joy when anyone in any form receives your salvation regardless. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can live in such grace, and by this grace we do live. In Jesus' name, amen.